Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. We continue and focus on one Federal Reserve. It is the Richmond Fed, which has a fabulous history from Black to Broadus to Lacquer and now to Barkin. The Richmond Fed, one of my favorites with the wonderful Tom Humphreys on the history of our economy. It's had a wonderful leadership, including under Jeffrey Lacquer. The former Richmond Fed president joins us now. Michael, it's a different Fed, isn't it? Well, it's a different Fed. It's a different economy, and we have learned a lot. And now we have a new reaction function for the Fed, which is where I'd like to start, Jeff. Uh, you were, have expressed some reservations about uh, this new policy uh, of letting the economy run a little hot till we can average inflation because you've expressed concern that uh, that could unmoor inflation expectations. Uh, do you think that the Fed and particular Jay Powell over the last couple of weeks and with his address on Friday, maybe uh, put a little bit of those concerns to rest by emphasizing the fact that the Fed is going to stay focused on inflation? Um, somewhat, but I think um, I, I think the Fed's in a tough spot. I, the, uh, the danger that they face from this inflation surge, um, we have inflation um, on a six-month basis higher than it's been since 1983. Uh, the danger is that that uh, persists. Uh, Rob Kaplan was talking uh, on Friday about the extent to which businesses were reporting that they expect these supply constraints to continue. But then beyond that, getting embedded in inflation expectations. And I think that's the real key risk that um, the, the Fed is running these days. So I was glad to see that Powell address that in his uh, remarks on Friday. Uh, he's and he's he's done that elsewhere as well, trying to assure the public that yes, if inflation persists at a high level, we have the tools uh, to deal with that. But it's it's somewhat like I'm, a friend of mine likened it to, um, you know, a doctor f telling you you have gangrene in your leg and don't worry, we have the tools to deal with it. But it's you know the tools are the amputation kit and they include a big saw, so it. it what we went through in the early 80s to get inflation down was exceptionally painful. And that's what motivated those of us who over time have advocated a more preemptive policy. The Fed's moved away from that in its strategy statement last year. The risk it runs is that that shift uh, last year um, is sort of akin to going off Bretton Woods and in, in that it it gives people the license to believe that there's an entirely new regime in place now with regard to inflation. In terms of tools, uh, one of the papers presented on Friday at Jackson Hole suggested that our star, the level of interest rates that would be neutral, is much lower than it had been. So does the Fed really have tools? Can they raise rates and cut off inflation without sending the economy into recession? I think they very clearly can. And, um, you know, more to the point, I think they can nudge up the poli expected policy path, um, you know, over the coming year. And I expect they're going to have to do that uh, to keep inflation expectations contained. Um, so I think they have the tools to combat it. I mean, it's uh, they're blunt. Uh, we haven't used them in a long time. But, um, yeah, I think the Fed 
has the tools to do that. If they, uh, well, let me put it this way. Can they go back to uh, jaw, jaw, to paraphrase Winston Churchill, and uh, jawbone uh, the economy into place? Or is it going to take action to get Wall Street's attention? No, I think I think actions have always spoken louder than words in this. Throughout the 70s, the Fed um, loudly proclaimed its uh, opposition to inflation and its desire to have inflation be lower. It just didn't take the actions to back that up until Volcker in 1980 uh, and 81 started letting interest rates rise and engineered uh, the recession that, that brought inflation expectations down. Uh, Jeff Lacker, Tom Keenan, good morning to you. You mentioned the preemptive nature of a theory and that Richmond is led on that. I think of the late Marvin Goodfriend with a cause for concern over inflation, the whole shadow open market committee, what we saw out of Carnegie Mellon as well. Where did the inflationistas get it wrong on your watch? So I, I think that uh, the stability of inflation expectations coming out of the recession um, was a bit of a surprise. I mean, a bit. Um, they were a bit more strongly anchored than uh, I and several others expected. So the upside risk to inflation didn't um, emerge. Um, I'd point out um, at the same time that uh, inflation doves uh, were also <clears throat> also missed it. They were afraid right. of uh, dramatic sag in inflation. But Jeff, did this came. Jeff, this came up over the weekend, and this is a critical question in defense of the inflationistas. The idea that the reason we didn't see the inflation is we just moved the inflationary impulse over to an increased al asset allocation in an asset balance sheet in equities, in real estate, all the summer properties Mike McKee can't afford. Sorry about that, Mike. Uh, good to be with you, Tom. Um, so I think... Um, what people lost sight of with the huge increase in the Fed's balance sheet is that the monetary liabilities it was pumping in the economy were being absorbed by a tremendously uh, a tremendously large demand for liquid assets by the banking system, driven by the bank's natural reaction to what happened in 2008, but also regulatory, um, you know, impetus. Uh, provided for them to hold larger liquid buffers. And that means that you know, the demand for money is essentially flat at the interest rate on reserves. And yeah, we could increase the money supply a lot until we start forcing banks to hold more liquidity than they want. And we're, we were a ways away from that. So yeah. the size of the balance sheet wasn't really doing much for the economy. On the flip side of the inflation uh, debate, Jeff, is the employment picture. And we're going to get a better read on that perhaps on Friday. If you were still on the Fed, what would you be looking for to determine just how much slack or how tight the labor market really is? It's a really good question. You know, we, we had all these debates about what maximum employment meant or what that number was. It's really a, a long run, long horizon kind of thing. It's like after all the sectoral reallocation has occurred, after all the matching that has to go on between people looking for another job, what kind of career is it going to be? I want a different occupation. I don't want to be in a restaurant anymore. And uh, firms looking for where are they going to find someone with the skills that I need. After that process plays out, uh, yeah, maximum employment might be a lower unemployment rate we have now. But that takes time. And maximum employment in September of 2021 is really close to where we are right now. We're really close to September 2021 maximum employment. 
we can't we can't get maximum employment much up above where it's it's going to be in September. So um, I, I think that you have to keep in mind the dynamic process uh, in which uh, labor markets heal. Some recent research by Bob Hall and Mariana Kudliak um, in that regard is painting a very different picture of labor markets. You think of the unemployment rate as shooting up in a uh, mm-hmm. a, uh, a recession coming down, but you know, uh, it looks like it just comes down at the same pace every every expansion. Uh, Jeff, you were uh, very much an inflationista when you were on the board, and I'm wondering if you've seen what the current Fed seems to be arguing that inflation dynamics have changed. Uh, and there is, as Jay Powell said on Friday, a natural disinflation in the global economy. I'm not sure I buy it. Um, what People have been uh, increasing the weight they place on um, inflation expectations and inflation dynamics over the last couple of decades. I know, you know, in the early 2000s, people thought it was all sort of a backward-looking process. The, the important thing to remember, and think, the thing people neglect about inflation expectations, people talk about it as if it's some exogenous external force of nature or else some collective psychological whim or something. It's really expectations about what the Fed is going to do in the near future. And so when you look at inflation expectations, that's really the credibility of the Fed. And that can change. And the process by which that shifts and changes over time is is not one that's deeply, deeply understood in the economics profession. Jeffrey Lecker, thank you so much. With VCU and, of course, the former president of the Richmond Fed, thank you, thank you so much. We've got the perfect guest for you, Kitschuks of Societe Generale. We spoke to his people last night, and they said he would make an appearance with us, even though his arsenal struggles there. Kit, let me start with the first important question of the week. If Harry Kane and Ronaldo joined Arsenal, would that help? No, we can't defend. (laughs) Goal scoring is less of a problem, unless one of them plays fullback. It's been sport to say the least. Kit, let's get started on a serious matter here. It is the summer doldrums, but it's not. What are you looking for? How do you frame a setup to maybe a more active September in October? I think, you know, we, we have to get away from being driven just by the Fed taper story. Um, so, you know, the, 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 the other currents will take over. I'll be interested, almost what's happening outside the United States, uh, only in the sense that things change if other parts of the world start to see recovery. Um, if you started to get better data in Europe coming through relative to the States, that could change things a little bit. But but while we're bogged down with this idea of not even when does the Fed start to, to slow its asset purchases down, but what does that mean about when they're done and what does that mean about when rate rises come and they're not going to come till 2023. So, hey, what are we going to do in 2022? You know, we have to, we have to get past that, that whole story. But I think you know, there's, there's geopolitics coming up. The, the COVID situation is, is, um, is either going to improve or, or it's going to become a real economic factor again. So that, that's not static. Um, and, um, you know, the, the range of forecasts for Friday's payroll numbers mm-hmm. over on your side of the, of the pond 
is huge. Right. So well, we, we will get surprised by this. We, ha we don't have a handle on the pace of job creation, really. We just guess. Kit, taking a step back, it seems like the market is saying that the taper is a non-event. Is that what we're seeing, that basically Fed Chair Jay Powell has successfully made tapering the $120 billion of monthly bond purchases an entirely non-event for markets? It, it should be. I mean, in, in a sense, the whole idea of the taper was the you know, the Fed slows down its asset purchases at the same time as the government spends less money uh, and, the, uh, and needs to issue fewer bonds. So who cares, right? Because what, what we've done is, we've, is the United States financed a pandemic with the government handing out checks paid for by issuing debt that was bought by the Fed. Just unwind the process. Just stop paying out checks and stop, stop buying the bonds. And then, and then we can get back to discussing important stuff, which is, did all these checks create savings? Did all these cre checks create demand? Did all these checks create inflation somewhere out there with all these bottlenecks and things like that? And, and I think that's what we're going to find out. But the focus is on ca can, can the U.S. government have spent this much money uh, getting the economy to recover this fast from the pandemic um, without, without some inflation that's stickier uh, than, um, than, they get, than the Fed's going to feel comfortable with? And we're going to find that out over the next six months in a big way, I think. You know, speaking of being this far from the pandemic, it is interesting that people are saying that when we taper, we have to go faster, given how far into this we are, 18 months or so. How are you thinking about a pace of a taper? Um, well, you know, the, the consensus view on tapering is you reduce, uh, you reduce the uh, pace by 10 billion um, each FOMC meeting. <clears throat> instead of the $5 billion for treasuries that they did in, in 2014, and that takes a year. Now, uh, you could go every month. Uh, you could try more. In a sense, it should be possible to go fast because the treasury is going to be issuing less debt into it. So you're, you know, you've, got, you've kind of got things lined up. The only difficulty would be if we started to get seriously worried about um, the inflation data and the strength of the economy at the same time as they're tapering, and then the bond market's going to struggle. And that kind of catches us where we are. It's really easy, it's really easy to, um, to taper without yields going up if inflation's low and the economy's not growing too fast. But if you, if you lose control of the story while you're doing it, it, it can get pretty messy. So I think they'll, I mean, I, I, I would go as fast as the market let me go once I'd started because it buys me a degree of freedom. But, it, but you have to be market-led. You know, if you, if you cut back your, your purchases by 10 billion one month um, and, and yields back up 30, 30 basis points in the first week, you know, you, you kind of, you, you go and have a scratch of your head pretty quickly. Kitschuks, thank you so much. Greatly appreciated. A good conversation to start the week for me. Society Generale and their chief foreign exchange strategist. Right now is the most important conversation of the day and even of the week for those that are saying, you know, lose the fancy talk. Just give me some courage. Robert Dahl, for decades, has done just that, a storied a career in the equity markets with Crossmark Global Investments. And, and Bob Dahl, I love within your research note, you say, look, we've got to invest in a, quote, a still good economy. What do stocks do in a still good economy? They generally go up, Tom. Uh, you know, a good economy means good earnings, and so the path of least resistance has been and likely will continue to be to the upside. That does not mean there aren't flies in the ointment. I can give you a list 
Uh, but the path of least resistance is still higher, Tom. You know that. Bob, the flies in the ointment. Let's go right there because that's how I roll. I mean, honestly, what material fly in the ointment are you looking at that potentially could disrupt things in a way that people are not expecting? Well, if they're all at the margin. You, you all just talked about coronavirus and, and the Delta variant. That, that That is one. But inside the market, earnings estimates for the third quarter peaked in early August, and they're off a little bit. That's after four quarters. We're right during the quarter. The earnings estimates kept going up. Brett, the average stock peaked in June. What's that telling us? It's telling us the market's getting a little tired. So I can fly, find flies in the ointment. Are the material ones? Uh, great question. Bob, can you answer the question for me? Can we get a reflationary cyclical trade if bond yields don't rise? Uh, that's the million dollar question. Uh, if you dropped me on the planet and told me everything except for the 10 year and asked me uh, to guess, I'd guess a lot higher than 130. Something going on in the uh, bond market when the S&P has the same yield as a 10 year treasury. Um, uh, we need to watch that carefully. That has that yield has to go up, uh, in my view, to have this cyclical trade uh, come back on. Bob Dahl, you have fought against the pendulum of flies in the ointment for decades and decades. You have said you have to participate, and the foundation of that, Bob Dahl, is that corporations will adjust. Do you observe, and in what way do you observe, corporations adjusting into 2022? Well, I'll start looking in the rearview mirror first. If you had told me there are more companies in the S&P 500 that would benefit from COVID than would be hurt, I wouldn't have believed you wanted to get. But that's exactly what's happened. Corporations are figuring out how to morph. Uh, they're dealing with very low interest rates. Uh, they've learned how to raise prices in an environment where pricing power is coming back. Uh, they've kept costs down. Uh, labor, I think, will be a uh, fly in the ointment on that one. But corporations have morphed in lots of ways uh, that uh, cause them to uh, print these uh, excellent earnings reports. I'll talk about another fly in the ointment just to keep repeating that image on this Monday morning uh, for everybody eating breakfast. I do wonder going forward, Bob, uh, about the potential for higher taxes. And I look to Washington, D.C., pulling together some sort of infrastructure plan. What have you accounted for in your projections and what isn't accounted for right now? Yeah, I, I still think the path of least resistance for that legislation is that we do have a Democrat uh, reconciliation package following the a bipartisan um, infrastructure plan, but a much uh, watered down one. Uh, let's call it $2 trillion with up to a trillion dollar of tax increases. Kind of the plain mm -hmm. vanilla ones, higher for uh, higher wage earners for corporations and higher capital gains. But you know, the Afghanistan thing uh, does not raise President Biden's political capital, get that through. So whatever you thought the probability there, it is lower mm -hmm. now. Bob Dahl, what's your target on S&P 500? I'm embarrassed to say uh, 42.50. Uh, as the thing just keeps going up, I've not revised my target. Well, let's uh, revise it right now. It's a slow Monday. We had to get Riggs on the show. For Taylor Riggs, do your revision right now. All right, 4,500. We end the There year we go. We We're making news. Bob Dahl, thank you so much. Dahl, <laughs> I love it, Taylor. Dahl at Crossmark, 4,500. Pretty cool. Now, Peter Trubowitz from the London School of Economics with all of his good work over the years at the University of Texas at Austin. And Professor Trubowitz, we've talked to Afghan experts 
I want to talk to you about United States experts, and I go back to your landmark politics and strategy. Do we have a strategy in foreign policy that gets us out to, say, 2023, a year before our next election? Well, Tom, it's good to be with you. Uh, I would say we have the beginnings of a of a strategy. I mean, really what's been going on for well over 10 years is that the United States is in the process of reassessing and adjusting strategically. And internationally, what that means is moving more of its energy, its time, its energy, and its assets to East Asia. And domestically, I think the principal challenge that has dogged three administrations is um, rebuilding or renewing the social contract, which has really been badly damaged by the country's failure to keep international openness and social protection in balance. This is the challenge. Afghanistan doesn't really change that, but I think it kind of draws our attention to it in a kind of more focused way um, as we wind down this chapter and, and, uh, and hopefully the United States begins a new one. I look, Peter, at a new strategy, and there just seems to be all the ghosts, the, the, the looking back. We look back yeah. one year. We look back two decades. We look back three wars. Which are you yeah. looking back to to find perspective? I'm not actually looking back at wars. What I think about is I, I think about, I, I really do think, we're in a period where the national interest is being redefined and it's not being done in the news cycle. It's being done over an extended period of time. So I look back at periods for the historians out there, uh, like the 1890s and the 1920s and the 1940s and the 1970s, where the United States readjusted, recalibrated, changed the balance between international and domestic uh, interest. And and that's what I think we're in the middle of. And I think it's very hard to see. You have to be able to kind of bracket it, step outside of it and get some distance looking at it from 10,000 feet rather than from uh, from 100 feet. And right when you're in the middle of something like what's going on in Afghanistan right now, it's very hard to see that. But I yeah. do think that's what Biden wants. Perhaps. He's trying to but get out. Peter, he's having trouble. That's where I wanted to go, because right now we're yeah. looking at an agenda in Washington, D.C. <clears throat> that is almost solidly Afghanistan. I mean, I was watching the Sunday talk shows and the political shows are all Afghanistan at a time when we're heading up into the debt ceiling debate. We're heading up until uh, this question about infrastructure and getting it passed. I mean, did this just accomplish the opposite? Yes, I think that's, you know, Lisa, that's the great irony in all of this. One of the reasons that Biden was so keen to get out of Afghanistan was to focus more attention on domestic problems. And the messy, costly withdrawal from Afghanistan has basically only increased the political risks of failing to deliver on that front and the difficulties of getting it done because he's now open and vulnerable to attacks over <clears throat> Afghanistan. You heard it yesterday, people calling for impeachment. Lindsey Graham calling for impeachment of Joe Biden. You know, and, and we'll hear more of that in the coming days, I think. Professor, are our allies rethinking our commitment to them? And I have Taiwan specifically in mind. 
So, you know, I think that is going on, although, frankly, Taylor, it's mostly on my side of the Atlantic over here. And I don't mm-hmm. only mean the UK, and uh, but also in Europe. There's a lot of people who are very pissed off about not being sufficiently consulted about the operations with respect to the withdrawal. I hear much less of it, actually, from our allies in East Asia. So why is that the case? I think it's because they know that the goal behind this, at least the international goal, is to shift the focus to East Asia, to China and more broadly. Mm. And that's a concern on this side of the Atlantic, on, on uh, you know, in the European theater. Peter, are we actually going to see the U.S. remove involvement from that region, or are these drone attacks that we're seeing going to be ongoing and then the need to put more personnel on the ground in order to get intelligence, and then all of a sudden, did we really get out in the first place? Well, I mean, you know, who knows, but I, I think we're going to see now because of the terrorist strike against the killed, you know, U.S. service um, men and women, we're going to see the Biden administration invest more time and energy in this, I think. They really cannot afford to see this kind of thing happen. It really can't happen on their watch. Whether or not it can be done over the horizon, that is with drones and some special forces, I think that's the goal. I do not think there is a huge push anywhere for more kind of boots on the ground, big time with nation building. The United States, American people, when you look at the polls, Mm -hmm. they're pissed off about how the withdrawal was handled, but they are not upset about getting out of Afghanistan. Peter, thank you so much. Peter Trubowitz with us, the London School of Economics Professor of International Relations there. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for Insight, from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.